In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the actual Anarchy Podcast. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Or should I say Merry Christmas and Hapa New Year? Uh, this is going to be episode 109 of the show, and it is not Death Wish. No, it is not Death Wish. We are throwing a curveball at you as a result of it being the college bowl season and very nearly the NFL, NFL playoffs. So hence the curveball. First is Robert is a feeble and sickly old man. So a fine gentleman who has a new and quite good podcast has picked up temporary guardianship of co-hosting duties. He is Dan Reed of the Culinary Libertarian. You can find his work at culinarylibertarian.com. He's got a blog and a show, a podcast, which is about uh, philosophy and food. Uh, One of them's free. The other one's on you. Uh, It's a tagline that I think he can tell us a little bit about uh, as I stroke my own ego here. Uh, the good news is that Robert will be playing the role of Gusto's ghost. That's right. We're doing Ratatouille uh, as a result of, well, Dan Reed's worked in a professional kitchen. He knows all about this stuff. So, um, And Robert and I did a show on this a couple of years years ago as the Reed Rothbard podcast. So we already sort of have his take on things. Um, and I'll be posting that on our show notes page at actualanarchy.com slash 109. Um, and then uh, I guess I sort of let the cat out of the bag here. I'm mixing so many metaphors. It's ridiculous. But uh, that second curveball is that the choice of the film for discussion is now going to be the more food-focused fare of the Disney Pixar Brad Bird's Ratatouille. Uh, and for those of you wishing for Death Wish, just keep wishing for one more week. And we will actually double down on that and give you Death Wish 2018 with Bruce Willis and Death Wish, I think, 74 with Chuck Bronson. So we're going to be doing a compare and contrast next week uh, on Death Wish because I really wanted to get Robert's take on that one. Uh, the impetus for that that uh, movie was one of his friends recommending it and having some questions that he thought that we could hash out on the show. So I couldn't do that uh, alone or, or not with Robert. Uh, that's why Dan was able to step in and cover for him and why we switched up the movie. Um, and so like the genies we are, we shall grant that Death Wish wish in our first episode of the new year. Um, and I've been running my mouth a little bit, but why don't we get into the last night's portion of the show? I'll reintroduce everything and then let Dan talk about his stuff and then we'll get into the movie. <clears throat> sound good to you, Dan Reed? It does sound good to Dan Reed. All right, too many Dans in a kitchen here, too many cooks. All right, here we go. 
Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Dan, the last nighters. That's right, Robert is sick and he is not able to make it to the show tonight. So I have a co host covering for him who is also a Dan. He is Dan Reed of Culinary Libertarian. And we are not doing Death Wish. We are going to do a movie in the Culinary Libertarian's wheelhouse, Ratatouille, <laughs> the Disney Pixar movie from 2007. So, Dan Reed, Thank you for joining us for what will be episode 52 of the show, lastnighters.com slash 52. Go ahead and tell us, the audience, about yourself, uh, where they can find your work, maybe talk about your show a little bit, and then we'll get into the Google description and hash out this film. All right. Well, the first thing I want to say is I can't believe I get to be on the one-year anniversary. This is show 52, unless you missed a week. That's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, I do have a blog and a podcast, and all that can be found at culinarylibertarian.com. <laughs> The podcast has a separate uh, link, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts. And Monday, episode 15, um, I think the big fancy, oh, Daniel's disrobing. Um, the big word in the industry is it drops. Um, anyway, uh, that's going to be a fun one because it's uh, about a, a cartoonist who is on YouTube. So I'm looking forward to everyone hearing about that. And so I write a blog about baking and cooking. And every once in a while, we take digs on the FDA. Well, that sounds like a uh, a lot of fun, and I can tell you that uh, my wife actually listens to your show, and actually, you know, she enjoys it. She said, "Hey, tell him that I enjoy your show, but don't be an ass about it. Don't embarrass me." So I'm trying to like do it as tactfully as I know how, and well, that's well, you just witnessed how tactful I am. Now I know why the office is outside the house. <laughs> we have a smart man on the other end of the line here. All um, right. So, Dan Reed, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, I know that you've listened to our show uh, over the course of you know years or months, and um, uh, we do interact every now and again on the old Facebook and Messenger, and uh, I think we are uh, kindred spirits who are walking the same path, and so I'm, I'm finally uh, able to get you on the show, so I'm happy that you're here. And why don't we get into the Google description, which is our normal um, first course on the menu. Okay. Oh, nice play. I'm, I'm digging it out here. <laughs> well, it's better than the curveball at football season. That's right. That was intentional, by the way. Uh -huh. All righty. Um, Ratatouille came out in 2007. It's a drama fantasy film, one hour and 51 minutes. And I will add a long one hour and 51 minutes. <laughs> I've got an 8 out of 10 on the IMDb, 96% Rotten Tomatoes, 96% Metacritic, 96% of Google users like this movie. So this is a, uh, a, a highly acclaimed film. Um, I think that, uh, well, well, we'll get into it, but I, I think upon further viewings, it maybe loses some of its luster. And especially after you listen to this episode, <laughs> we might tear it down a couple of eggs. All right, here's the description. Remy dreams of becoming a great chef. And Remy's a rat, by the way. Uh, despite being a rat in a, def in a definitely rodent-phobic profession, he moves to Paris to follow his dream. And with the help of hapless garbage boy Linguini, he puts his culinary skills to the test in the kitchen, but he has to stay in hiding at the same time with hilarious consequences. Remy eventually gets the chance to prove his culinary abilities to a great food critic. But is the food good? A Pixar animation. Came out June 29, 2007, directed by Brad Bird. And Brad Bird is also famous for doing The Incredibles, The Incredibles 2, and mm. also The Iron Giant. So what is your take, Mr. Reed, on the Google description uh, and anything I've said thus far? I think the Google description misses the mark pretty broadly. Yeah, it's a rat who cooks. So it, there's, it, it seems woefully inadequate. All right. Well, that is a devastating take on the <laughs> Google description. Um, I think that, 
as I mentioned earlier, uh, we did this show or this episode on Ratatouille as the Reed Rothbard podcast, Robert and I, a couple of years ago. So he's going to be Gaston's ghost for me. He's going to be a figment of my imagination. Uh, and I'll be posting it on the show notes page, which is lastnighters.com slash 52. And he goes through a really good summary of the plot. But essentially, you've got Remy, who is a rat who has a special ability, a special skill that his colony, his father and the thousands of other rats that live with him, utilize this skill of, of him being able to smell uh, poison in food. And they use him sort of as, you know, the old, um, what's it, the pharaohs or the kings who would have a taste tester. So mm-hmm. that in case he'd be poisoned, uh, the the hapless uh, taste tester would be the one to die <laughs> instead of the, the nobleman. Um, but Remy would be able to smell it. So he wouldn't actually die as a result of it. But his, his that was his special talent. And, and so they assigned him that duty, even though he had it in his heart that he was really wanting to use that that skill, that ability to smell something and know all the ingredients that are in it to enjoy food and combinations of food and explore flavors of food. And so that's sort of how the movie sets up um, his particular skill set, his particular set of skills where he will find food. uh, And uh, I'm trying to do a taken thing here, but uh, we'll just move past that. So uh, basically then there's, there's this other argument between him and his father, Remy and his father, where uh, the other rats are going through garbage to get food. And Remy says, Says they're stealing the food, but the dad says, no, that's food that they've thrown away. They don't want it anymore. But in a way, I think Remy's trying to twist the word a little bit or twist the meaning of stealing so that he can say, well, since we're already stealing, why don't we, instead of stealing the garbage, steal the good stuff? And so that kind of came across to me as a very um, sort of like the commie kind of way, like they want to be in that special class of, well, if we're already going to do something bad, then we might as well do something bad to get the better stuff. So they're going to be the um, what's that? What's this upper class of uh, communist system? Um, I don't speak communism. Sorry. Like the commissars or whatever, the bureaucratic class. I, I understand. Yes. Yeah. So they, they like, you know, live it up at the expense of the uh, of the, the peasantry who are yes. subjected under the rule. Uh, so I felt that Remy was basically conflating the two things so he could justify the outright theft. Whereas I, I believe his father is actually more correct in that once something is in the garbage, you know, someone's throwing it away, they're telling you, we don't want this anymore. And it's essentially fair game. I think at that point, I agree with that. If it's in the trash, it's something that has been discarded by the owner. So it, I, I think there's even some legal aspects to this, that there is no legal ownership any longer. Since you, since we presume that the state can go through your garbage because it's not your garbage, it's not your stuff. It's in a bin designed to go to some floating island in the south of China. But here's that particular theme changes once Remy and Linguini's relationship is really, really tried. And so Linguini breaks his bonds with Remy. Remy's feelings are hurt. That's not an un, that's that's not an alien idea, but. Remy's response to having his feelings hurt is go ahead, go into the restaurant and take all the food that isn't discarded and actually for real steal the food. Yeah, that's a good point. And that is his payback to Remy for not recognizing or payback to Linguini for not recognizing Remy's contributions to Linguini's success. And of course, we're, we're jumping ahead quite a bit. So, you know, spoilers all around. Of course. Um, but if, if I may back it up just a little bit, um, Remy was already stealing from the from the kitchen, from the pantry, um, little by little. And his his brother kept bringing more and more of his crew by, his friends by seeking that um, that access to the pantry. And so he was stealing in smaller amounts initially that was growing incrementally. And he was probably, I think they, they 
show him sort of vacillating on it? Well, like he, he was like he, from the old lady. He was living in her house, taking her food. Well, that's the very beginning, yes. Yeah. And that's when he was justifying it with, well, we're already stealing garbage, so why not steal the good stuff? But what I'm talking about is, is when he's at the Gusto's restaurant in okay. Paris and his brother rediscovers him and he shares some food with his brother. He tries right. to like, get him to taste you know, two different things, get the combination, the flavor combinations, all this stuff. And then the brother comes back the next time with a handful of other rats. Mm-hmm. And then the next time he comes back with even more rats. And then I think this happens two or three times. It does. And Remy, I think, feels guilt at allowing these rats to come and take advantage of this. He even tells us, but I told you not to tell anyone. But every time, you know, more and more rats come. And I think this is sort of the transition or the turn with Remy where he does realize that, hey, he's kind of doing a bad thing. And he's sort of uh, abusing the access that he has and the trust that Linguini has in him. But he yeah. also used that as a vehicle for vengeance later on when he feels that Linguini has done him wrong. Yeah. And so I, I think there that if we follow that thread, there is no real resolution to that, which seems fairly consistent with a lot of animated movies. We have this real big tension and then some other related but not uh, some of the related event happens and the other thread's forgotten. And so now Linguini and Remy are buddies again and they're cooking again and it's like, well... <laughs> Uh, I didn't actually think about that particular aspect of it, and that's an interesting thing. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting, uh, when you listen to the beginning, uh, Gusto was talking how anyone can cook, but to excel, you've, you've got to be fierce in your commitment to be the best. So we have we already have this sort of statement of equality, but then exceptionalism. Everybody can do this thing, but only the best can succeed and be you know, everybody could play basketball. Everybody could throw the hoop in the air and maybe make a basket. Not everybody can be Jordan or Magic or Larry Bird. Um, so same thing with cooking. Everybody can cook, everybody can bake, but not everybody's going to be exceptional. So there is, to me, in the beginning, a presence of this, and it's interesting to look at this with, <laughs> with these particular sets of, of views, this level of equality that seems to be the rage now. Um, there's a built-in inequality. Remy is a rat like all the other rats, yet his own characteristics are, his taste buds are wildly superior from all the other rats who basically just want whatever hot garbage they can find to live to the next day. So there's this this mock-up of equality and inequality. Yeah, I think that's an interesting take. And I I think that uh, the whole point of Gusto's Anyone Can Cook is meant to be read one way at the at the beginning of the film, and then Ego at the very end finally realizes what what if you look at it a different way, that's probably what Gusto really meant. Because initially he's like Ego was saying anyone can cook, as if it's this pie in the sky utopian fantasy that anyone can acquire this skill and no innate talent or any you know drive or anything is is necessary. But by the end, uh, Ego says you know he really meant that anyone who really wants to and really works at it and has the proper skills and the proper talents and the proper, you know, um, innate abilities or, or what is it? What's it called? The, um, the potential and maximizes that potential. They are the ones who can cook and cook. Well, I, I, I agree with the idea. I think that's what Gasto was referring to in the beginning, that, that there are families all over the planet who are feeding parents who are feeding their kids. Now, are they feeding them, really fabulous gourmet food or are they just nice or are they just um food on the table so sustenance versus fine dining cooking versus cooking and i think gusto is making that distinction that 
to to become exceptional, which is what Remy's goal is. Remy has this Remy has this burning fire to create culinarily, where you know there are others who uh, the the artists and the architects and any other really um, developed talent. We would assume on some level that that person had an inkling to do that over all of the other opportunities of employment. The architect chose architecture over digging ditches. Maybe there's a skill to digging ditches I don't know about, but digging a ditch or building a building and then 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 building the Taj Mahal, that's not the same thing. Cooking and cooking is not the same thing. I think I'm I'm reading ego's comprehension exactly opposite of yours, that at the in the beginning, ego, hence the name, has just this hugely inflated concept of what cooking has to be. And at the end, with this, so yes, spoiler alert galore, the the dish he's served when he gives the fair warning, I'm coming to dinner tomorrow, do your worst. So they serve him ratatouille. No, okay, the name of the film. It's, it really is just a vegetable stew. What can you do to this basic provincial vegetable stew to make it more than that? And an ego eats a bite. And in that Proustian moment, where the food now is a time-traveling element. He's four years old at the door of his mom's house, and, and the comfort and nourishment of her ratatouille is exactly what this grumpy old man just ate. And now he realizes anyone can cook because it's just from, it, it is a skill, but there's also a level of love that goes into that that negates some hoity-toityness and so I'm seeing the exact opposite, that everybody can cook, and there still is a way to take that a step higher. Well, that is interesting, because I still see it the other way. <laughs> well, a good thing I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> because at the end, it's Remy's ability to basically tap into that subconscious connection. Like, you know, you can hear a song, and, and it'll transport you back to 15, 20, 30 years ago when you first heard it or some a moment when it was indelible in your mind. And, mm -hmm. and it's it's like a it's like a time travel mechanism. And I think that's what the skill that went into making that ratatouille, that peasant's dish, that really brought him back to his roots because it was so on, it was so well done, it was so perfectly executed. And then that's all he eats. Right. Yeah. And so then but now it's just it's oh right. That again. So let me just working Nobody tries, really. Nobody sets out because you don't know who's in the dining room. Nobody sets out on purpose to make that dish. But on some level, we're always trying to make that dish be the dish that um, either it serves as the vehicle for memory of some point 30 years ago, where grandma's house, auntie's house, mommy's house, whatever it was, or that particular dish becomes the thing. 15 years from now, it's like, oh, you know, they try, but it just wasn't the thing that time. And I've actually, in in many, many years of cooking, on a very rare occasion, a note from or a verbal uh, message from uh, the, the customer to the wait staff to me was, <laughs> the, this, this, this guy was transported. You try to do it, but you, you really, you can't do it on purpose. You just, you, you do, you do your best. You, you, so this, so we want to talk about the food a little bit. Let's talk about the food a little bit. There's a scene where Remy is eager. Guy get out of this kitchen. One of these cooks is going to find me and I'm going to be dead. And he runs by the stockpot, which we have seen Linguini taste the soup. And even a cook with no cooking skill recognizes, 
wow, this is bad. And Ratatouille, or Remy runs by it and smells it. And he goes, oh, my God, this is terrible. So he has this, this, you can see the sort of proverbial cook's wheels turning. That, all right, what's it say? Smell this, it needs this, it needs this, taste this. And one of the things I found really interesting was that's what happens. There is, I don't, I don't know much about, well, I know about writing, but you know, these other crafts, I don't really know much about them. But in the, in, in the food craft, when you're, you've got, you've got flour, a lump of butter, and you got some sugar, what do you make? You've got sausage and peppers and onions and just these things. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you take these things and make them sort of the whole gestalt more than the sum of their parts? And the animators did a spectacular job of, of, of showing Remy walking around, thinking, 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 doing this with his fingers. <laughs> I do the same thing. I think, wait, wait, what, what, what? And 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 I really think I, I laughed sort of in spite of myself that that's ex- that's yes, yes, that's it. That's that's the cook's creative process. The mind's going. So it's what what flavors? What do I know goes with this? And sometimes you've got to think way far away from what sounds reasonable, and and you make these bridges, and then then you've got a thing. Oh, and speaking of transporting people, um, this show is also on the Launchpad Media. So check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com, where you'll find all sorts of other shows, including this one, The Last Nighters. Smoother than others. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right. So you brought up Gusteau a little bit. And let's talk about him just a bit more, if you don't mind. I don't mind. He is the best of the best, and they open the entire film with, if they were to make it today and base it in the United States, and they said the words, the best food is American food, and the best city in America for food is New York City, or whatever. It would be considered like nationalism, or something you know, evil, right? Something really bad. But they say, you know, in this movie, the French food is the best food, and the best food is in Paris, and the best restaurant is Gusteau's restaurant, and he's the best of the best. And uh, he wants to make it easier for the average person to get good results as he says anyone can cook and this reminds me of um how products are brought to market uh, by entrepreneurs trying to satisfy the needs and wants of consumers and when there's a new thing that kind of comes around it's the first uh early adopters you know like the 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 rich if you will who are buying these things and if they're decent products uh and they're profitable products then more and more competitors will join into that industry driving the price of it down and the quality of it up so that it becomes something that is more uh, accessible to the masses, to the consumers. And that's sort of how I viewed Gusto in trying to bring good food and the ability to cook good food to the masses. So it's not just for the aristocratic types. Maybe. So <clears throat> there's at least two things. Um, I, don't, I, I know a very little bit about the French and their um, passion for their food. And in it's it's probably probably easy to argue that one of the best chefs, French chefs ever, was Paul Bocuse, who died recently. He was in Lyon. Lyon is a big hotspot for food in France. We don't know about it here, but it's 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 the thing. Lyon, Lyon is potatoes. It's a big place for onions. Uh, Daniel Blue is from Lyon. There's a whole handful of chefs who are from Lyon. And the interesting thing about Bocuse was he wrote a a pretty high-end cookbook for the masses of classical French cuisine. He also produced a variety of cookbooks for for anyone can cook kind of things. 
And even if you bought all of those books, if you had the money and the inclination and you were in Lyon, you would go there because there's there's an experience at the five-star restaurant, even if you own the books, that you can't reproduce from the books. This is the same argument that says if you want real Italian food, even if it's just spaghetti and red sauce, you need to be in Italy. Because part of eating really spectacular Italian food is being in Italy because it's not just what's on the plate. It's the smell of the of the city and the sounds of the city and the clicking of the silverware at the of everything that's part of that experience is part of being in Italy and getting Italian food. That's probably a bit silly to sort of it's 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 not a logical final line of thought. We wouldn't say it, you know, I don't know. No, that makes a lot of sense, actually, because uh, I used to go to a lot of sporting events and granted watching them on TV, especially with HD and all the new camera angles they have, you actually get a better view uh, and you can see the action and the replays and the commentary and the announcers and all that on TV. And it's it's a better viewing experience, but yeah. it's far different being in the same building as Jordan in his prime yeah. than watching him on TV. I, I saw I saw Jordan play the Heat in Miami. I saw Bird play the Heat in Miami. Um, being in the place, watching, uh, I watched college football in Tallahassee for years, being surrounded by 85 of your closest friends that you've never met really changes the experience of the game because it's just, you're, <laughs> you don't yell and scream yourself hoarse at home. Well, speaking for myself anyway, um, yeah, my brother there's, does, but <laughs> there's, there's the participation of association, whether it's a sporting event or five-star dining or whatever else you're doing, you know, it's just, there's something about being at the place and experiencing everything that is more than just the reason you went there. The screaming idiots and the fans and the, and the peanut vendor who's got the man dead eye from 75 seats, you know, it's just, <laughs> that's fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I remember growing up, there was a guy, um, who was the peanut guy he would sell at the kingdom at the Mariners games and he would do the behind the back and all these crazy antics. And he could really just throw it on a dime, you know, a hundred feet away worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. It was great being there. And, and as a kid, you know, it's like, that's, that's half of the fun is, is being there for the experience and being with the energy of the crowd. Not so much uh, for the Mariners as they weren't very good when I was growing up, <laughs> but I when didn't know. Weren't did something change? Uh, they had a good five or six year run uh, from 1995 to 2000, 2001. Okay, I don't baseball. Well, they, they made the playoffs uh, in 95. It was the refuse to lose season and they were going to move to California. Uh, but because they pulled it out, um, I think from 10 games down against California Angels and they won a one game playoff, uh, you know, single elimination to get into the playoffs against them. Uh, that is what sort of cinched it for the financing for the new baseball uh -huh. stadium that was built. <laughs> With well, the, money. So, you know, at the time I was like all for it, but now I look back, I'm like, man, what a misallocation of resources of stolen funds. <laughs> so speaking of stealing, one of the things you mentioned, um, so the rats, the, the father who's name I didn't get, the father's view on taking the food of the humans, I think he felt no problem whatsoever with that. And he had information Remy didn't have. And and was initially uh, not supportive of Remy's decision to engage with humans and said, son, let me show you something. And they went up and looked at the at the exterminators business and in the front window 
uh, illuminated by the lightning and the rainstorm are dozens and dozens of rats on traps and every kind of poison you could think of. And that was the moment for me that it was the dad's rationale. I'm taking the food from the humans no matter what, because the humans are going to do anything they can to kill me. And this is just part of the game that it is. And this is one of those things is I'm listening to the father talking about we take their food because that's the way it's always done. And Remy, who is taking a very, <laughs> very anti-war position here, but well, why? Why can't we just get along? I'm not listening to Rodney King. I'm listening to Scott Horton and John McCain. I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is stop. Because this, this sounds like the father is being this sort of neocon. We, we we're at war because we've always at war. And no, this is this can't be what they intended. But it's an interesting observation. He ends up changing his tune because he's because it's a cartoon movie. <laughs> that's why he changes his tune because <laughs> it's in the script. That's another one that's interesting because I, I actually view that actually uh, a little bit differently than you do. And and I'm not saying that you're I'm going to have to think about your position on this because I think it has some merit. But how I initially read that scene was he goes to show Remy that the humans are their enemies. They're actively trying to kill the rats. And he shows them basically the proof of it. And it's the reason why they stick to the garbage, because that's what's available. That's what uh, they're able to access without too much human interaction. And he's trying to tell Remy, hey, here's why we don't interact with the humans. This is why we don't go into their kitchens and steal the fresh food. This is why we take what they're already throwing out. Well, that's a valid point. But anyway, it's it's an interesting take. And, and that's what's so fun about how you can look at a piece of art. And I think film is an art. Uh, some of yeah. it is um, garbage art, but uh, others you know, are, are quite good. And, and this isn't a bad film by any stretch, but it is very much open to interpretation. It's very subjective. And the yes. writers and the creators might have had a, a certain intention with this scene or even with how we both viewed um, anyone can cook slightly differently at the front end and the back end of the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it'd be interesting to see what was intended and then compare that to what, you know, how other people read it. I almost think that a movie like this or like... Well, I mean, I think animated more than live action because animated, I, I think there's, I think the vehicle limits what you can do versus live action. You can do, I think you can do a lot more. You can create more tension with with acting and dialogue. And I think the cartoon, uh, I sort of think that I'm not right, but it feels to me like it limits it a little bit. I think that for this movie, the real fun part and the sort of the germ of the movie was let's make this rat cook and then engage with his human and let's fill out the side of the story a little bit. I think to me, it feels like that was the whole idea. Now, how do we turn this into a movie and not just one of those cute little 10 minute shorts? Oh, I, I don't know if it's true. So they have the kernel, right? Yeah. And they're like, all right, we got to, we got to flesh this out a bit so that we get 90 minutes minimum or, you know, up to two hours of content. Uh, that, that, that sounds plausible to me because, you know, you can see these, uh, even Pixar does these Pixar shorts and they're five or 10 minutes and it's a little encapsulated story and you watch that and you get the whole thing and, and it, it makes sense. It wraps up neatly. And Some of them are really, really good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. They're short. It's like, wow, this is, I'm, I'm glad I watched that. Yeah, and it conveys so much in such a, a short amount of time. Right. Uh, very different than this movie, which my wife and I were watching again last night because this was, you know, like a last minute change up to um, to the plans here. Uh, and I was even watching it via YouTube. It's it's a movie that I had purchased um, and purchased movies I can watch on Vudu or Amazon Prime or Movies Anywhere or iTunes or YouTube sometimes. And 
one of the advantages of watching on YouTube is I can change the playback speed. So I was watching this at one and a quarter to one and a half speed, kind of changing it up here and there um, to just try to get through it, you know, because I've seen it a couple of times already. We've already done a show on it in the past. Um, I just wanted a refresher and get some notes down. Right. And we were pausing it a lot because I was taking notes, but it took us almost three hours to get through it. And there were about 45 minutes left when we were like, all right, let's just go to bed, watch the rest in bed. So it really dragged on this movie. And I don't know why it's, it's like, there's not too many, you know, plot elements really going on here, but there's sort of like these little side kind of things going on. And maybe a lot of those could have been cut out, I would imagine. But, um, I wanted to ask you, you brought up the soup and how Remy could go buy the soup and, and smell it and do the thinking thing. Mm-hmm. And he kept saying, he's ruining the soup. He's ruining the soup. So speaking of rat soup, um, I sent you a story and it's from one of those, you know, probably labeled as fake news sites. One of those viral, you know, get, <laughs> get as many clicks as I can. Uh, here's a list of 10 things, but I'm only going to show you one thing per page. So you got to give me all oh, the clicks. Yeah, they're so annoying. I avoid those. Uh, like the plague. Yeah, there's a rat play on that. Boom. Uh, man, I'm terrible. But uh, apparently a rat had fallen into some chowder in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, which is actually very close to me. Say chowder. And uh, I don't know if it's true, but uh, it uh, became, you know, very, very relevant um, to today's discussion uh, as a result of being in the uh, the recent and local news. Well, it's really the, the timing was very funny. You had no way of knowing that in one of my cooking threads, there was a story about it's just so stupid. Um, some some cook discovered a cat that had been in the fryer for four weeks. So a couple of things. How do you know it was four weeks unless you know you didn't change the fryer for four weeks? And that's just gross. Um, I, unless, I mean, unless the fryer was on when you weren't there, which is possible. Why did the cat not get out of the fryer? Um, it just, the, just the, the, the idiocy is just, is just too much. But just, so I... I I don't think that's a true story. I responded back to you that there used to be uh, tales in my uh, former town of rats falling into the fires at Kentucky Fried Chicken, which have pressure cooker fires so they can't fall in, um, or mice and cockroaches and cigarette butts and soda bottles. And um, and I think most of those that uh, picture the soda bottle, I think some of them have been proven to be faked just to win a lawsuit, which... You don't win when you're discovered to be a liar. Are you talking about the um, bonsai kittens? I don't know. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know if I want to know what that is. Uh, I'll find some bonsai kitten imagery and put it on the show notes page. Um, I think it was an internet hoax, but you know how bonsai trees, they, they trim them to grow oh. in a certain shape in a certain yes. way. And so what this was, was um, uh, allegedly putting kittens into glass bottles or shaped bottles and growing the kitten in there so you would feed them and extract their excrement and whatnot and the kitten would grow into the shape of the bottle and i think it was satire meant to be some kind of a a joke and i think it even got in um, into some trouble um with PETA or or someone like that or some you know some group like that uh but i wonder if i can find it maybe on the wayback machine the uh, internet archive No, I have to admit, I, I know nothing of this. This this sounds both hilarious and horrific at the same time. I think that's what they're going for. Well, it's got to be a joke. I mean, just it does. I mean, just yeah. I don't think they they'd uh, survive um, even even with the uh, feeding and and being able to relieve them. Um, wouldn't their muscles atrophy and and wouldn't well, they basically just die as a result of? Well, I'm I'm sure the well the meowing and caterwauling would be just enough to say, fine, get, you're done, get out, and just. Oh, God. 
<laughs> All right. So, so speaking of the rat soup, um, yeah. I'm reminded of the Pulp Fiction line: <laughs> "Sewer rat may taste like pumpkin pie." <laughs> yeah, but I'm never gonna know because I never eat the filthy motherfucker. That's right. Uh, so this is a not safe uh, for the for the kids at home episode. But I did want to add that um, when we did the uh, Ratatouille episode a couple of years ago, I also watched the Morgan Spurlock film Rats around the same time, and we discussed it in that episode. And in that um, Morgan Spurlock film, I I learned that rats leave a trail of urine wherever they go, and this is a form of communication for the colony of rats that hmm. they travel with they run with and so anytime you see a rat um just know that everywhere he's been there's a trail of urine where the rat has has gone uh so they are uh rather disgusting uh they can also eat through almost anything even metal and they can fit their heads through something like a tiny hole if they can fit mm-hmm. their skull through it they can fit the rest of their body through. Yeah, that, that part i know so that's pretty gross it <laughs> is pretty gross all right speaking of something that's gross uh they mentioned just very briefly in passing, uh, one of the patrons in the in the restaurant orders foie gras. Am I uh, saying that right? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit because I have a, a slight personal story. And that was when I was living in Seattle, I went to a restaurant and there were people protesting outside because this restaurant served foie gras. Okay. These were people like cruelty to animals and someone was dressed in a duck suit and all of this. Why, why would somebody be upset about foie gras? Do you know? The manner in which it is created sounds pretty terrible if you're a goose. They take a, a funnel. <clears throat> well, start with the modern. They take, take a funnel with a hose on the end, and, and they, they force feed the geese some manner of food. I don't, know what that, and I don't know what's in the food now. Back some many thousands of years ago, um, the way people sort of figured this out was happening was geese in Egypt would gorge themselves on figs. I mean, just not stop eating, like my daughter and donuts. And what they found out was that these figs would grow, uh, the livers would grow huge, 10 times the size. And all of that fat in the liver, oh, well, man, is it good. So the yeast sort of did this to themselves and we just sort of helped them along. So they're, they're, I haven't seen it done. I've not been to a, I've not been to a farm. Um, I eat veal. I know that there's a big protest against that. Um, it, it sounds like a terrible, terrible thing. I haven't asked a goose. I don't know. Mm, I wonder if they just left them in a room full of figs, if they would just take care of it for themselves. They might. I don't know. I would like to find out. Yeah. A fig-fed goose, even the meat would probably be really yummy and it'd be worth finding out. Right. Now, one of your recent episodes, you had a biochemist on. I did. And uh, uh, I think he was talking about eating uh, organ meat and how it's different depending on how soon after the animal has died, that it changes yes. the flavor of the meat. So is that also part of how foie gras works? Like, is it more of an immediate thing or is it um, is it still good if you, ha- you know, prepare it a week or two later? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, well... And unless you're on a farm, you're not, you know, I'm speaking a little bit out of my depth, but I'm pretty sure that unless you're living on a farm, dispatching your own animals, what you're buying in the store is at least several days old. Um, I'm pretty sure most commercial organ meat, and really mostly we're talking about um, tripe, um, tripe and liver, uh, I don't think you, re- and possibly sweetbreads. But I don't think I don't. You're not going to go to your local Walmart and buy lungs, 
or you can get intestines for sausage making, but that's not really, you know, if you're about chitlins, that's fine. Um, that's not my thing. Um, brains, I've, I've, I've had lamb brains, they came frozen. So a lot of these things just due to the nature of what commercial um, butchering is, yeah, brain, sudden, brain is uh, sweet bread. Is that what that? No, means? it's two, two different glands. Sweet bread is the thymus gland, and that's in calves. And as the as the animal grows older, they atrophy. Um, again, it's one of these. It's um, a. It's very very rich. It has almost no texture. Whereas you, if you're cutting into say any kind of a steak, a skirt steak, a flank steak, a, a, a New York, a, a porterhouse, there's there's texture. There's grain to the meat. Sweetbread brains have no grain. There's just just this gland, with just lots of fat and stuff. Uh, liver doesn't have any grain. Um, beef liver, you know, calf's liver is really the one we're looking for as far as livers go. Uh, I don't know. I, I think probably it's going to be frozen because usually you're not going to get the whole thing. Uh, a big calf's, a calf's liver is a big thing. <laughs> what do I do with all this? So you buy a slice or two. It's probably been frozen. That may be something to do with FDA and managing pathogens and all kinds of other stuff. But uh, the biochemist is named Kyle. Kyle's point um, isn't restricted to liver, but his point about liver was made because it is such a store of toxins because it cleans the blood. It has all of this stuff in it that as it sits, all of this stuff needs to go someplace. Well, it doesn't have any way out. So it just sort of breaks down its environment. It's an ungracious host, those toxins are. So if you're going to eat liver, eat liver as close to dispatch of the animal as possible, except in the case of particular like chicken livers. I think there may be something to do with the age of the animal. Chickens are pretty young when they're killed, and foie gras has all of that extra fat. I mean, just like this. So a, a foie gras liver may be this big. It might be a pound or better. A goose liver, yeah, what, three ounces? Oh, wow. So four times bigger, so oh, five times massive. bigger. Just huge. Yeah. So. I think I think the fat content mitigates those other complications of breakdown, and I also think a lot of that's frozen anyway. Okay, and that uh, episode with Kyle is that wh what's the link to that? Um, hang on one second. Culinary Libertarian, I want to say thirteen. I will tell you that sound. No, I think it's fourteen. But let me pull up my little episode list right here, and yeah, culinarylibertarian.com slash fourteen. Uh, biochemist dishes and fat and sugar. All right. Well, we will post that on our show notes page here as well. Lastnighters.com slash 52. Uh, and speaking of last nighters, since it's only about an hour long show, we are getting close to the end. We got another 15 or so minutes remaining before we need to, to wind it down. So let's move on to another thing. And that is Remy is hallucinating talking to the ghost of Gaston, who is sort of a motivational speaker for Remy, basically telling him what he wants to hear, but pumping him up to go and actually do it. And I just sit and mope around. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was helpful to him. Uh, but he sort of quizzes Remy on what he knows about how the kitchen runs. And they're up on the skylight looking down. And he's like, well, who is that person and what, what role do they have in the kitchen? And then he goes through the whole list of everyone else. How accurate would you say was the description of how the kitchen runs? I mean, did they have somebody who, you know, was like their consultant uh, to the script and, and to the creation yes. of this to get it like dead nuts on? Thomas Keller. All right. I guess was, that answers he was, that. He was their consultant. So, yes, it is. So here's the thing about. So we, 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 let's bring sports back for just a little bit. So pro football, pro baseball is just a monstrosity of an organization. Um, college football, maybe only slightly less so, but you've got your buddies who are going to go play in the sandlot and pick up a game of football. And 
when you're talking about the the thing, the cooking at a level like at the Fishnal Gastos or at any one of Keller's restaurants or at any really five star style restaurant, uh, when um, oh, you just you just another one just passed away. Can't remember his name. He had a, a Jamin was a restaurant in Paris, I think. Joao <laughs> uh, Rubichon, I think he had sixty some odd cooks to feed forty some odd people in one kitchen. Yeah. Wow. So you're getting a, a level of skill and talent to make all of this come together versus going to your local Shoney's or Denny's or even even the really sort of high-end in your area neighborhood restaurant isn't going to have, they might have a chef and a sous chef. They're not going to have the entremontier, which is the veg cook, the saucier, which is the sauce guy. Then you've got different, the poissonnier is the cook for the, the fish cook. All of these stations are people who have specialized, at least at the moment, for that thing. Now, that doesn't mean that the poissonnier can't move over to meat and they move all around, which is what will happen anyway, because you need to have a, uh, a kitchen of talent that can do anything. But where your station is, that's your particular focus for the menu for whatever the season is. But yeah, for the movie, they got it spot on. Oh, that's that's pretty good then. Um, and, and I also noticed that Colette, who they had a very kind of feminist angle to her, Saying that she had to like work twice as hard as any of the men to be there, and, and how it's run by a, an evil uh, patriarchy of old white men. <laughs> but um, she had this like set of lessons for Linguini about how keeping your station clear and you know how you're going to handle a rush and like how you keep your sleeves clean and yes. how you move your body and all those things. Are those like actually the things you learn if you're going to be working in a professional kitchen? Like those are the things that they say, hey, that's that's kitchen etiquette 101. You're going to learn how to do this. So well, you know, so burns and and all those things. <laughs> I don't I don't think it's 101. And the reason it's not 101 is that's that you have to demonstrate a level of competence and earn a level of trust from your coworkers to then get those gifts. And those really are what she's giving is 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 really just a gift of her time and invaluable uh, information to him so he can grow and become a better cook. So Kitchen 101 is uh, if your shift starts at three, be there at 250. <laughs> okay. So it's more of the advanced level stuff. Okay. It's a little bit advanced level. Yeah. But it's, it's definitely like that's high quality, good information. Yes. That's something that you, yeah. So work in the kitchen, you want to do things in that, in that manner. There's so anyone can cook, but to re I wrote it down, um, but to really excel, you have to be fierce in, in attack your craft. So Colette was fierce and she attacked her craft. Um, there is there, there is a mindset and a just a way you approach your station. You know, if you watch these cooking shows and they're look at their cutting board, look around them. And when they have like the whole crew before they start cutting some of the cooks, just don't watch what they watch you watch. Look in the background. Look at the people whose stations are just a disaster. They're up, they're going soon. The people who there's there's an order here that has to end up here, which is not just on the plate, but on on your whole prep table. So the knife, <laughs> this is this is it, it sounds kind of crazy because a lot of people can't sort of grasp that this is the thing. But when you have your knife, it goes down in the same spot all the time, even to the point that the blade needs to be the same way. I always turn my blades away from me, so if I'm moving my hand on the board and I slide and I slide my hand along my knife, I'm not cutting my fingers. You might get cut because you're next to me. I'm oh, sorry. Pay attention to what you're doing. But I'm not cutting myself. 
and there's just this, the, and she used the word, there's, the, there's a mise en place. Everything's in its place, but it starts with mental mise en place. You have to go into cooking at that level with a, a sense of order, a sense of what's going on. Even if you don't know what's being made, you know that if you're the, if you say the, you know that the pastry chef called out and you have some baking skills. Well, we need short dough and we need bread. What do you do first? You need to, I mean, it's so the short dough is the right answer because you need to work the dough, then it has to rest. The bread, you mix it, let the yeast do its thing, now it doesn't really care about you. So there's, there's a knowledge of a sense of order and that knowledge also of ingredient compatibility, which is what when, when Remy's doing this, he's thinking, 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 like laughing because that's that we're back to um, Keller really, really gave them good information that this is there. There are orders of operations in a kitchen from the minute you walk in the door. The order of operation happens on your way to the job. It's just it's it's not it's. It's it's so much more than just a job. It's just it is it is a it is a lifestyle. Cooking at that level is the lifestyle. See, now we're back to that subjective perspective on, on watching the film because as somebody who, who's familiar with this uh, this world, this genre of professional cooking in, in a kitchen like this, you're seeing all the stuff that the layperson like myself would not see. I'm just seeing uh, rats and and you know cartoons and, and marionette kind of. Yeah. The guy's hair but i mean there's a whole under element of all of this what sounds to me from from talking with you very legitimate like this is upper level how a high-end restaurant functions yes no they, they they nailed that part was was spot on they did a great job all right very interesting well let's get um <clears throat> start to wind it down a little bit here uh one of the other higher level things that colette teaches Linguini is how to get the freshest vegetables. And that's by paying bribes to the farmers to give her <laughs> the first pick. And I was like, black market, baby. Yeah, that's how you get it done. That's that's getting the highest and best use. Somebody's willing to pay a higher price to get the, the pick of the litter for their restaurant to have the highest quality ingredients, the freshest ingredients, and, and they're willing to make that exchange uh, for that benefit. So is there a question there? No, mostly just a point. <laughs> well, so that they put it in there is kind of funny that they put it in there is that that really does happen. So here's the problem. There's a couple of things. So it doesn't happen all the time. And most vendors, vendors who would engage in that kind of behavior would be considered this. There's a very, very fine line here. Um, vendors who would engage in the um, gratuity system, for lack of a better word, would be once that's found out by the other businesses that can't engage in that would probably not be called anymore. Mm. There is that that is viewed in the industry as is just just bad form. So that's this would be like a market system of justice, right? Well, there is because if I find out that if I find out that uh, Elwood Produce Company is giving better choices to my competitor because they're paying him twice as much, and I can't afford to do that. And Robert's Produce Company has exactly the same product, and he's willing to give me the product I want at the price I'm willing to pay, and it's the same as the guy who's spending double, well, you're not getting my call. And I'm going to tell somebody else, hey, you know, you should really give Robert a call. So there, there is a level of, <laughs> this the, the balances out, balances out quickly. Um, so there was, so I have worked in restaurants and hotels where uh, you often have a liquor guys. You'd get a, you could get, uh, let me, let me sell you this extra case of, knockoff liquor 
And so there was usually that happens not with a chef because the chef's not going to do that because they haven't got time for that. Um, if the restaurant or a, a hotel has a purchasing agent, well, then that's that's the place to watch the money. And I've seen that happen. And that'd be like legitimately fake liquor, or would it be like liquor that fell off the truck, so to speak? Yeah, I got to guess a liquor for you. I'm Frankie. Come here. Yeah, yeah, that kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> All uh, right. Well, any other points you want to make on this movie before we get into the final summary and review and the score? Yeah, there was one thing I thought was really interesting. Um, I was thinking that it seems that lots of movies are, but this one seems to have a a redemption level to it, which it does. Um, even even though the business goes out of business, um, Linguini, well, both, so well, Colette too, probably all three of them. There is a moment of self-actualization Remy realize no when he realizes i don't have a lick of talent the rat has the talent and the rat through whatever his mental processes are comes to his own with the aid of his ghost gasto uh, his own self-realization that i'm a rat but i have an exceptional set of skills and i'm going to bridge the gap with my human friend and make this thing work and colette comes back so they have this redemption of coming back together, work as a team, but also the redemption of know thyself, which is really, really critical for Linguini and for Remy, because they were trying very hard to be something that they weren't. And then that's followed up with the sort of has to be know thyself and then to thine own self be true, which they finally are. And now they have harmony. I think that that's an easy overlooked, I don't say message, but uh, something at least an easily overlooked uh, moment of the movie but I think that's it's really kind of important to how the whole thing ends up playing out. For Gasto's dictate, anyone can cook. Yeah, start kidding with your tagline of the philosophy is free, but the food's on you. Oh, the tagline. Well, I, I put it out to, to this guy I know somewhere in some island off of Washington. And I said, yeah, I need, I need something zippy, something that's short and quick. And, and this, this guy came back with... Uh, the Colonial Libertarian Podcast. The philosophy is free, but the food is on you. I think you know him. I think I think I'm looking at him right now. <laughs> I think I'm looking at him right now. I don't know what you're looking at. When I talk, it shows me on the screen. I see. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, you do philosophize a fair amount, and and you've <laughs> uh, shown that on on this guest appearance. Well, right here as well. So uh, very impressive. I, I think that that's one of the draws to your show, and I highly recommend it. My wife, uh, like I said earlier, she enjoys it very much, and even tried the uh, gluten free muffins, blueberry muffins recipe. And how they work out? Uh, they tasted great, but she opened the oven before they were done, oh. and they deflated, and so she felt like she made a mistake there. Uh, but she's going to try it again and try to keep them lofty. It is a it is a common thing to do to sort of proverbially stir the pot too soon. And too often, let the thing boil, let the thing bake, and just leave it be. Uh, it knows better than you what it wants. So just try it again, give it a little bit more time. Yep. And you get the recipe right, you get the timings right. It'll generally work out. It'll generally work out, and it's not going to go from bake, 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 done to burnt like that. It's not going to. It's not going to incinerate in in seven seconds. It just won't happen. Um, generally, in the case of a thing, the better the outside is browned. Well. So in baking, browning is flavor. Flavor tastes good. Flavor is good. We want brown. We want that to happen. So just tell her, just resist the urge. Go read a chapter of a book and come back or something. All right. So it's not Mission Impossible. It's not these muffins will self-destruct in seven seconds. No. And that no, no, no horrible, no, 
watch too much TV. No horrible thing will happen um, if you let it bake for another minute or two. All right. All right. Well, this is a good spot to do our final summary and review. I'm sure you've heard our show before. So do you have an idea of how that goes and give it a rating? One through 10, a decimal point deep, if you will, please. You know, so the, the as an overall, I'm probably going to go with about an eight or eight and a half. I, I think it, I, it, I don't, I mean, 10 is high. 10 is too much for almost anything, but I think eight and a half is pretty solid. All right. All right. Well, I think you've actually already given us a pretty good summary right before leading up to that. So about eight, eight and a half. I think so. All right. Well, I, I think that this movie is really good. Um, I'm not going to go with the 9.6, like all of the IMDb <laughs> and the Metacritic and the Rotten Tomatoes and right. the Google users. They all seem to land on that number. Um, and as I said in the open, this is a movie that for me, it doesn't play repeatedly very well like the more you watch it the less i like it uh so yeah. i'm gonna knock it down a peg or two um but i also don't have that underlying like nod to my expertise you know there's that whole undercurrent of the professional kitchen um and how that all operates and i think that somebody who works in an environment such as yourself would watch this and that would give it you know bonus points that would make it really stand out among films as far as hey, they get it, you know? Um, but, you know, it's a Disney Pixar film. They hit all the right notes as far as the animation's beautiful. Uh, the they, they go for the emotional angles. They, they have a redemption turn. Uh, and it's all, basically every Pixar movie is almost the same. You just swap out the different uh, animated animals or, or articles uh, and you uh, put John Ratzenberger as one of the voices and you've got another Pixar movie. So, you know, they're all generally pretty good. They're they're high quality. They they spend a lot of time on these things and they innovate constantly as they're as they're creating these. Like they're always on that cutting edge of whatever the capacity or the capability of animation in that day and age is. Like mm -hmm. they are developing new techniques with each of these films that they create. And uh, so I'm always impressed with how Pixar comes out. It's with it, the latest and greatest. It's it really is it's just stunning to see how they do that. It's just one of the it's a it's just when when the when the waiter is going into and this so it's the point of view waiters going into the dining room and if you just and now with digital you can you can pause it to look at it without any 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 uh, distortion and look at the dining room and the chandeliers and and just it's 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 just a dining room but it, it, they've captured a an elegant five star dining room so well and it, it's not it's just it's just it's just a room but it, all the details to the curls of the curtains on the wall and the tables and the tablecloth it's just they they've got it down they <laughs> it's formulaic but it works and and the, and you're right they just we went and saw what do you say uh, Ralph 2 and the the quality of the animation and just the little things like um um uh, you know, you're welcome Maui whatever it's just her hair and the water, those little things that they do in each movie, they're pushing something. And it's just it's amazing to watch. Well, well said, well said. And uh, this, uh, I think, will wind down the episode for The Last Nighters. The show notes and more can be found at lastnighters.com slash 52. Dan Reed of The Culinary Libertarian at culinarylibertarian.com. You have that website and a show, a podcast that is now 15 episodes strong by the time this comes out. Woohoo! And uh, so I do highly recommend that people do check that out. So uh, thank you for filling in for Robert. He will be back next week with me doing two versions of Death Wish, the, Death Wish, the most recent one, 2018, and also the original starring Charles 
Bronson. So, Dan, thank you very much. And My pleasure. I will say good night from last night. Good night. All right, and we can continue for a few more minutes on the actual Anarchy podcast where we don't have that time constraint of the roughly an hour. <laughs> I had no idea that the music was actual music that I could hear. I just figured you were doing this post-proc because that's what I do. I don't, I just edit, I just, so you're sort of, your editing sounds easier than mine. Well, I've, I've gone through many permutations on how this thing works, and I just got a new thing for Christmas called a stream box, which should make a few things even easier. Wow. Right? It's like 15 buttons. You can program them to do different operations. Really? And I haven't uh, set it up just yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. People highly recommend this thing. And heck, I'll, I'll put a uh, Amazon affiliate link uh, on the show notes page so that people can check it out, at least see what it is that I'm talking about. But it mm-hmm. should make podcasting uh, much easier. It's actually intended for um, game streamers to be able to be playing a game that they're you know showing to people like on youtube or twitch or whatever uh just be able to hit buttons off to the side and just perform these operations i don't even know i have i don't understand what you're saying i don't game (laughs) (laughs) all right well we can we can move on to uh i actually had a few more bonus questions for us related to ratatouille that i felt are a little bit more appropriate for the actual anarchy audience um, and, and it's related to two different things. And then we can also, if you've got time, stick with me for a little bit of the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for our Patreon supporters. And I've got a question from my wife for you about Chili uh, <laughs> for you there. And uh, so that can be available for people who support us at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. But okay. the two topics I wanted to go over with you before we end the actual anarchy show proper is what was your thought on the Skinner character? And he was, of course, the twirling mustache evil villain who was commoditizing and taking advantage of the good name of Gaston by creating mass marketed sellout style frozen foods that, you know, are actually getting decent quality food out to the masses for low prices. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's a great thing. We don't know it's decent quality food. We're only told that. We don't know that that's true. Um, what we do know is that it sells for the millions. And he was very, very excited about that. And and there was one point where all of the little cardboard cutouts are talking in the accent appropriate to whatever food he's hawking. That's problematic uh, these days. <laughs> I would imagine. I, 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 I still struggle with it. I mean, I understand the, the entrepreneurial angle. Uh, if you can do it, do it. But part of me is just saying, nah, I just... It kind of goes back to that five-star restaurant experience versus making it yourself, even if you've got the skills and the talent and the tools and and the, you know, you can learn from the book and and all those things versus going to the five-star restaurant and and having that experience. Yeah, I I just, I I know that there's, I'm not sure. I I think Emerald still has, maybe that's wrong. Well, I know he has sauces. Um, Mario has spaghetti sauce. Um, Wolfgang Puck's got some soups, I think, or used to. Yeah, uh, he might still have some soups. And I know that Wolfgang's got um, cookery wear. I'm just, I I think I bought a couple of the soups just to sort of try them. But I'm I'm not the market. (laughs) I'm just not not the guy for that. So I I don't see it as a boat. I don't see it as a plus. Well, they were put there by a can, by a man working in a factory downtown, right? I, you know, he's, he's some of these, uh, that's fine. I mean, he's got a job. He's got a job. <laughs> All right. The other one I wanted to ask you about was um, the health inspector. And this is the big sort of like uh, 
what do you call it? The climax of the film where they're getting shut down by this health inspector who, when he gets first reported uh, by Skinner to the health inspector, the health inspector's response is, oh, I can fit you in in three months. Yeah. This is meant to depict that the health inspection department is underfunded and understaffed and trying their best and all of those things. But at the same time, they have health inspections, they have certificates, and they have these uh, verifications, all these things that lead the public, I think, to falsely believe that these things are checked out and, and are up to snuff. And anytime there's a failure, it's a failure of the free market. At least that's how it's presented. Uh, versus, you know, it, it, it's a system that is top-down bureaucratic, uh, which doesn't have any economic calculation. There's no way to know how much staff to have or what methods to employ into, um, you know, what are the best methods to ensure that a restaurant is is healthy and safe to eat at? Is it going to be a stack of regulations, you know, eight inches thick? That No, it's uh, not eight inches, not eight inches uh, thick. It's... I don't actually have. I used to have a copy of the food code. I'm trying to find something that's it's it's a it's it's printable. The FDA food code is something that that every health inspection agency uses as the model. Um, and then inside any particular jurisdiction, they can have some other rules of their own. But the 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 core of it all is the food code, uh, and it's just it's it's bureaucratic ease. Um, some. So I'm, I'm just I'm not saying we need government, but some of the some of the observations for proper food handling are wise observations. And we don't we, we can we, we can learn from trial and error that if we leave something set out too long and eat it, it will make us sick. And because those are pathogens that are growing on the food and the food with pathogens in your body and your body says, oh, these are bad guys. I don't like them. Let me work hard to fix them. And then we're going to vomit and puke and all kinds of horrible things and stuff comes out that's supposed to stay in. The science behind that is verified by just bunches and bunches of people. So there's there's this food code, which is really hard to read, really, really long, and, and covers some you know, good ideas. Wash your hands. Wash your hands a lot. When you go from cutting raw chicken, wash a knife, get a new cutting board before you cut the salad that's going out to the customer that's not going to get cooked. The, these are sort of just basic things that we should know. Right, but these things would happen on the market anyway. They do happen on the market anyway. So here's so so the health inspector in the movie who is three months behind at a desk with piles and piles and piles of files around him as if to suggest that he is overwhelmed. I think that's probably the case for most jurisdictions. I think there is I don't have a ratio, but I'm I'm pretty sure that there are far, far more restaurants and food service operations than there are people to attend to them. So if they get to a place twice a year, twice a year, every six months, you know how much damage you can do in five months and 30 days? A lot. Um, if but they it, get there at all. It leads the public to think that there is this safeguard in place. And so they can let their guard down and not do their own due diligence to make sure that they're satisfied that eating in that restaurant is a safe thing. Yeah, but that's something that every one of us does every time we walk into any restaurant. Right, right. But what I'm saying is, is because we're told that somebody's taking care of it, even though they're doing it very poorly and they're, they are perhaps understaffed and underfunded, but because there is no feedback mechanism, there's no economic calculation. And there is no um, sort of market 
based allocation of what's best and, and new things that come onto the market to try because it's codified that it's it's sort of stagnated and it's a false sense of security. Whereas if people didn't know that that system was in place, they didn't think it was already taken care of and therefore it doesn't need to be on their radar on a personal level, they would then take back that individual responsibility to satisfy what they deem is safe on the market. Like it's sort of this, um, you can't really know because it's the alternative, you know, it's, it's the unseen alternative that what would it be like in the absence of the violent structure that's in place? Right. That's funded by taxation. Well, yeah, that's that. That's almost just pure speculation. It's just hard to know. Um, it's it's also really hard to know since I don't. I'm not really familiar with the rules in in Oregon. Um, I don't think they're required to post their report. And um, some states used to, and I think some of them have stopped, but they used to put a letter grade on the report visible for all to see. So you walk in and see, oh, this restaurant has an A. Well, so just like you said, whew, no worries. Let's go in. Let's, let's get something to eat. Um, never mind the fact that you don't know. So that you don't know what has happened is a, is a true statement. You don't know what's going on in the kitchen. You don't really have any way to find out what's going on in the kitchen. And even if you could see in the kitchen for 30 seconds, in that snapshot of time, what exactly are you going to see? Can you understand what you saw and do something with that information? If everything is pristine, wiped down, it looks beautiful. It's like, wow, what a gorgeous kitchen. Yeah, I want to eat here. And you leave and then horribleness happens. Well, you don't really, if there's just, I don't know that there's a way to fix that problem. The false sense of security coming from, well, truly someone has inspected it. Yeah, that's the, that's the risk we all make. Um, there are places for, so the, the first problem is we don't know what's going on. And then they give a day with any given staff member. You don't know that they should be sent home because they're washing around in a state of, the state of sick that they shouldn't be. And the thing that you don't know, and the report won't tell you this is what is the skill and the commitment to finding problems of the inspector? Oh, what's the inspector's grade? Indeed. I've seen um, when I was coaching in culinary school, the inspector who came there was was extremely kind, recognized that it was a culinary school, not a restaurant. So um, <clears throat> he actually used it as an opportunity to also teach the students. While you're here in the school, let me show you what you're going to when you run into this in a restaurant and I come to your restaurant, I'm going to nail you on this and this and this and this and this because we're in the middle of a classroom. And so it's an opportunity. Um, he was, a, I, I liked him. He was a really nice person. He was really good at his job. Uh, I've seen some inspectors who look like they need to be put out to pasture. They're fine people, but they're very incompetent at their job. And they would just sort of <laughs> spin in circles with their pad of paper, look at things, go and put the thermometer in, you know, well, let's, all right, let's tempt the butter. Let's tempt the fish. Let's tempt the meat. Let's tempt something in the line. All right. Well, here's your report. Thanks. Bureaucratic way. <laughs> well, it's just so the, it's I think the I think the only real vehicle people have, although that's increased now, is we have um, there's there's Yelp. And then um, I know I don't know. I at least in my town, there are a couple of Facebook groups for that are food oriented for the community. So I think that there are now ways to for good or for bad, share your bad experience. Now, if 
if the food was good and the waiter was really rude, that's not a food issue. That's a staffing issue. That's a management problem. That's an ownership issue. But that doesn't mean the food isn't safe to eat. It just means that you had a surly waiter and who knows what happened to that person before that person got to work. Right. But but we now do have the Yelps and the Google reviews and the trip advisors and the and trip advisor. that like Zagat, right? They would give um, ratings to the restaurants. And um, Zagat. Zagat was a good one, and people coveted getting the top notch. But that was a that was annual, mm-hmm. and and that wasn't that wasn't reviewing that wasn't reviewing the wholesomeness of the restaurant. The the um, health inspector's job really is to inspect the physical plant, and is the physical plant uh, in sufficient um, state of repairs that the food can be held? Cold food, cold; hot food, hot. Um, is is there in a, is, does the washing machine have soap? Do the people know they need to wash their hands? Is there soap for the cooks to wash their hands? Is there hot water? Um, these are the things the health inspector has to look for. And while the health inspector has the power of the sheriff behind the office, I I, I have never seen a health inspector come in and say, "Oh my gosh, this is so bad!" Quick, call the sheriff. Call the locksmith. We're shutting this place down. It's never happened. Now, where does Gordon Ramsay? He's the guy who does the um, nightmare kitchens or the kitchen. Yeah, he, um, yeah, that was him. Yeah. So, I mean, is that is that made for TV or are those legitimately real places that did pass health inspection and are viable open restaurants that you know are maybe well, viable might be a generous term, but I mean they are really struggling and, and therefore they're on um, the show. But I mean they have all sorts of violations on their face, right? Well, that's a good question. So. You know, Fox gets beat up a lot. Um, some of it probably well earned. Uh, I think Fox does, from a, from the drama side, um, their their job, their business model is they got to sell soap. So Gordon is really really good at turning it up to eleven. Um, he's really good at that. But if you watch the British versions, um, he can still go to eleven, but he can also be extremely compassionate and one on one speak to you like a person who really cares about you. He cares about the success of your business and then tell you you're being a donkey and go fix the rest in the kitchen. Um, I'm going to tell you that I think probably for the most part, those restaurants really are that bad because I've worked in restaurants <laughs> that, or, or just didn't, didn't last long. I've been in places that really are just that bad and just containers and containers and containers of moldy, uh, unidentifiable DK. <laughs> it's just, it's, Right, so, uh, let me let me stop you right there, and and that's with the current system yeah. of health inspections once or twice a year. Yeah. Okay. So we're sort of like feeling out the the uh, effectiveness of that as as we well, went into the actual anarchy podcast here. Yeah, um, I worked at a um, retirement community, and so when you have uh, when you have a bunch of retired folks, you have a bunch of old aged people. So there are there are groups of people, the elderly and the young, are particularly susceptible to uh, pathogens in food. So the food really has to be cooked. So we sort of make jokes, cook it dead. But it's it's not for a bad reason. It's not to it's not to make the food taste bad. It's because we want to make sure that this aging population, which doesn't necessarily have uh, the physical ability to fight off pathogens that I do and that you do. We can sort of deal with things and we might have a stomach ache and we say, oh, it's a 24 hour flu. Well, that's food poisoning. It's just a low level. When you can't handle it, it becomes more serious. So you, as, as the cook, you bear a burden of responsibility, making sure that you're not serving to your audience things that are going to cause them to get ill. Now at a retirement home, 
they had a choice, but they have less choice. At a restaurant, if you want to serve beef tartare, you can serve beef tartare. I trust that the cooks are going, if, if I go to the restaurant that's serving it, and I think that they have a legitimate claim to serve it and do it well, then I'm not, I may not order it, but I won't feel uh, queasy about that being a choice for that restaurant to serve because I don't have to voluntarily buy that dish. I can buy something that's cooked. I don't eat raw oysters no matter who sells them because I taught sanitation class enough times and I know what politics is one time of a bad oyster and that's a, that's a, that is not an experience I wish to share. I don't want it. It's 14 days of absolute hell. Thanks. No. All right. Maybe in the Kathleen Turner overdrive available for our Patreon supporters. So Dan Reed, why don't we continue the conversation uh, on that end? And uh, I thank you very much for joining us for this episode of the Actual Anarchy podcast. And uh, again, people can find your work at culinarylibertarian.com and listen to your shows. I think the one that we mentioned was um, one with uh, the biochemist, Kyle. Was yep. that 13 or 14? 14. 14. So 14. culinarylibertarian.com slash 14. I will post that on our show notes page, which can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 109. So thank you for joining us and we'll get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive, everyone. Good night. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do